are listening to the Slash and Cast Podcast Network. Enjoy the show. <laughs> All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. Justin here with a quick word before we dive in. In this episode, I chat with veteran voice and stage actor Stuart Zagnet about Little Shop of Horrors, musicals, voicing Professor Oak, the Pokemon phenomenon, and more. And as usual, if you enjoy the episode, feel free to leave us a review wherever you're listening to this or not. It's up to you. Without further ado, here you go. Greetings, trainers. This is Professor Oak speaking. Please report to the lab in order to choose your starting Pokemon. A world filled with monsters, madness, and magic awaits you all on your journey to Victory Road. Bye for now. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Stuart, just take us back in time to when you were a youngster. You know, what were you into? What were some of your hobbies? That sort of thing. Were you a big reader, etc.? I had a vivid imagination. I loved to draw. I was like the artist of the family. Any opportunity to sketch. Maybe it was some of the early... There was actually a TV show where you could put a little clear vinyl thing on your TV screen and you could draw on it. I can't remember the name of the show. But remember doing that from an early age. So there was always pads and pencils and crayons. I used to have scribble sessions with my with my cousin who was growing up. Who she was my best friend, really. And I also was very influenced by entertainers. So I grew up watching Abbott and Costello reruns on TV and Laurel and Hardy and the Three Stooges and Jerry Lewis movies because he was a very good physical comic at that time. And I remember wanting to emulate Jerry Lewis. So if we if we were playing, let's say we were playing Army and with my friends, I'd always be the goofy soldier mm. who, you know, who couldn't carry his, his gun right and would trip and fall. And I used to set up the living room like an obstacle course and see how many pieces of furniture I could trip over, tumble over, and it was real—it was like this is what I did for fun. I mean, I was a performing nerd. There was like nobody in my family that was a performer, yet I would put on puppet shows, and I and I do song parodies. And my mother would always encourage me at family gatherings, "Oh, do that song." I guess I guess it really stuck. So so I wound up in my small hometown in New Jersey. Me, I wanted to act. So an actor who had had a, a resume of doing movies and whatnot in Europe, he moves to New Jersey. He meets and marries this woman who writes for the local paper, and he opens up a theater school in my hometown. I mean, the odds of that are like zero. I mean, there was like no culture in my in my hometown. And 
I was like the first kid to sign up for him. So I did I did children's plays that he produced. There was a um, summer theater in Metuchen, New Jersey called Plays in the Park. And I did three shows with him there. And it just moved into high school. I think I was president of the drama club in high school. Then I went to college and I was vice president of the players group. That was the, the student theater group at, at Montclair State, where I went to college in New Jersey. The path was already predetermined, you know. Right. And, of course, I think my family sort of looked, where did this come from? But it's always what I wanted to do. And my mother, I think, had a similar sense of imagination. And she could see how much it, it meant to me and how I behaved in that situation. And she always said to my dad, he's, he's going to be fine. Because my dad said, well, how's he going to support himself? How can he possibly do this? You know, and she said, don't worry, he's, he's going to be fine. You know, he loves this. And so I really appreciated that because here I am now, you know, right. <laughs> moving on into another <laughs> phase of my life. And I'm still working. And I'm, I'm currently working off Broadway in the acclaimed revival production of Little Shop of Horrors that's running at the West Side Theater on, uh, in, in Midtown Manhattan. It was kind of a dream for me because when we flash back to 1987, I got cast as Seymour, you know, the, the yeah. character leading man in the original production. I was the last actor to play that role in that acclaimed production. And here I am all these years now coming back and playing Mushnik, who's the, the flower shop owner. And I've come full circle with the show and I'm having the best time of my life doing it. The show is brilliant. It's just a it's just a masterpiece of of storytelling and music and comedy and horror. I mean, it's got everything in it, and the audiences are eating it up like a spoon. I mean, I can't believe how the staying power of the show and um, now to be part of it again is really kind of a dream come true. So I've been pretty lucky as it goes in the business. So you know, the, Patty Lupone, you know, uh, sings in company. I'm still here. Well, you know. I'm still here. <laughs> That's actually from Follies, excuse me. Mr. Sondheim was very smart about these things, and uh, a lot of these things are really based in, in truth. When it comes to theater specifically, do you prefer musicals to work in musical theater? It's a funny question because initially, before I went to college, uh, I thought, oh, the only people who do musicals are singers. They're not actors, you know? And I kind of had a low opinion about it. So then I come to Montclair State, then college, now it's university. And I get cast in a student production of The Fantastics, which had been for the for years the longest running off-Broadway musical in history. And we did a production at school, and I played one of the one of the two fathers. And my best buddy at school was playing the other father. And we had an amazing time. And I went, huh, maybe, maybe you can be a singer and still be an actor. And then ironically, most of my professional career has been doing musicals. I have, and I took it more seriously and started really studying voice. A lot of my career has been doing musicals. I did The Wild Party, Susical, The Musical. I did a tour of Applause. I did Newsies on Broadway. I did People in the Picture, which was a musical. Now I'm doing Little Shop of Horrors. Mm -hmm. So it just, it's been a, a huge part of my career now. And occasionally when I get an opportunity to do a non-musical, like a couple of years ago, I was cast doing an Arthur Miller play called The Price. And it's only a four character play. It's obviously a lot of, t of talking. It's, it's, it's two people scenes, three people scenes, sometimes four people scenes. 
And it was quite a challenge, but I played the 89-year-old furniture dealer, and I actually aged up more than, than I am <laughs> now. And uh, I, I had a great time doing that. So, you know, I, I kind of rise to whatever challenge is presented to me. And um, the thing about this business is it's never boring because you're really never doing the same thing twice. Right. And every show is different. It offers more challenges to you. I've come to be a bit brave about it and know, okay, so maybe something's going to be a little tough to finesse, but you'll get there. And I do because, you know, I either you have a lot of help or you know how to do the investigation to get to that, you know, desired place you need to be. It's my life. On the on the way to that, I was lucky enough to get an audition for uh, Pokemon. So I'm sure you're going to ask me a question oh, about I'm, that. We're getting there. We're, I'm building up to it. When you're talking about your approach as an actor, does it differ at all to whether you're on stage or on screen? Yeah, it, it is different. It took me a while to get as comfortable on a TV set or on a film shoot. The tricky part is most of the time I've been a guest character coming in for one episode. And when you're doing a TV series, you have to realize all the regulars, this is their home. They may have different settings, but as a unit with their crews and uh, their production staff and their fellow cast members, this is what they do every day. So they're really comfortable. And you are the real outsider. And the trick is to get as comfortable as they are in their everyday work and you're only there you have to you have to acclimate yourself immediately to a strange set strange crew a director you don't really know you only met him at a, maybe at an audition and now you're there to work the first time i did one on a soap opera i was so nervous i mean i we we did a rehearsal then i went back in the dressing room which was a little room by myself and i just paced back and forth and going <laughs> through my lines and mercifully, I got through it, but I never felt really relaxed the whole time. Right. More recently, I did a guest spot on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and played a rabbi officiating at a bar mitzvah. It's in the third episode of, this, of the new fourth season that's out right now. And that was a two-day shoot. I really worked very hard to make myself at home there. And unfortunately, we had a lot of time on, on set to get comfortable and they would start doing you know the wide shots and then they do shots from all the leads perspectives and by the by the end of the second day they were doing my close-ups and by that time i had been on the set for quite a while so it was actually easier and it came out really well i'm really happy with the with it's, it's one of the biggest scenes in that episode so sort of everything in the episode sort of leads up to this event and of course things go in unexpected <laughs> directions so so I had a really good time. And, and in fact, last night I was leaving Little Shop of Horrors and we had quite a group waiting in front of the theater. And a lot of people like kind of cheered and applauded. And one guy said, nice job, you know, nice job. He said, nice job on Mrs. Maisel. And I went, oh, that's great. You saw me, <laughs> you saw me on that too. So, but the focus, you have to also figure out where the focus is you know who you're looking at and in theory you have to think everything's a wide shot because everybody's looking at the entire stage in television you do have close-up time and that's it's good to know and to be aware of what you're doing so when when i see something and i and it, it works i'm very i'm very pleased but it it was a long longer learning curve for me to get as comfortable on a on a tv set i did 
I did a blacklist of uh, a series, uh, a season finale episode of the blacklist. This was about, I think, season six. It was me. James Spader comes into the scene, and I'm I'm the tailor of John Waters, the director, and he's playing himself. So we come into this tailor shop, this haberdashery shop. I'm fitting him for a suit that he's having fit, made. And so I'm dealing with him, and then James Spader walks in, and so I got I got two celebrities with one shoot, and that was I, I could have easily gotten intimidated by that, but I kept breathing, and <laughs> got through rehearsal, and like the shoot time takes quite a bit of time, so you and negotiating how I do the lines and also pretend like I'm actually fitting him and and pinning certain parts of the suit, and we actually wind up having a really good time, and that that came off rather well too, so. I'm, I'm, I've, I've been fortunate in that regard. How did that first opportunity pop up for you from stage to screen? It was, of course, it's it's having certain credits. Visibility is a good thing. When you have a show like Francis Little Shop got a lot of attention when it first opened. And I I'm, have that come in to replace an actor who has left the show. But they have had Seymours. They've had like several Seymours who bring their own fan base with them. And it's been great because it sort of rejuvenates the show every time uh, they debut. There's a new influx of people who either are seeing it for the first time or coming back because they want to see this person in the role. I did a Broadway musical, Carolina Change, which is now nominated for three Tony Awards, including Best Actress to Sharon D. Clark, who came over to reprise the the role from London. And we're keeping our fingers crossed that maybe we'll win, maybe she'll win, or the show's up for Best Revival, and there's also a Best Costume nomination. So we're hoping that it brings brings home something. But sadly, the show had a short run, and we Mm. did complete the run, but we closed on January 9th. So we're not around right now. So even though we got love letters from the critics, we hope that things will, um, they'll be remembered. But you know, you know that, that that's sort of an unknown factor. But to answer your, your question, I mean, some of it's really just luck. It's being in the right place at the right time. I came into the show and at the end of my first week, they were doing the official 40th anniversary celebration for Little Shop of Horrors, because that's how long the show's been around. Mm-hmm. And to be part of that uh, festivities, which is still ongoing, uh, like I'll be doing uh, a publicity thing tomorrow, they just they just keep happening. And I think I think having been connected with Carolina Change because it was a very honored show and the critics loved it has as I, I can also see a result reflected in my opportunities now because of that. So uh, sometimes it's just it's just the luck of the drawer. I did a show back in the '80s that was just going to be a four week run at a little off-Broadway theater. We opened to rave reviews and it kept getting extended. We wound up moving the show to a, an official off-Broadway house. So basically I did that show for about a year, which is very rare. That was just a good a good fate moment for me. And um, I, I sometimes I think there's a little bit of a lucky star. I don't want to brag about it, but you know, sometimes think good things happen. So I think being an optimist, a perpetual opti- optimist has always helped, so. It doesn't hurt, that's for sure. Considering the alternative. (laughs) So was Pokemon your very first voice acting job? I had done a little bit of commercial voiceover acting. I had I had an agent for a long time and was doing tags. I remember when I first an agent, they sent me out for Acme Supermarkets, which is not which is it, it, now it's a regional chain. It's not known all over the place. I think it had been bigger. So they cast hired me to do this contest, the promotion they were doing for Acme Supermarkets that was connected with Eastern Airlines. 
and there was all these prizes. It was like, uh, you know, if you like prices, 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 and prizes, 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 then bring it on home to Acme. So I went in for the session. I did all these tags for different areas. And so I must have done about 25, 30 of these tags that come in at the end of the, of the commercial. And I wait, you know, a month or so goes by. And then I, I go to my mailbox and there's a nine by 12 manila envelope, not a letter size, a real manila envelope. And I go from my commercial agent. I said, what's this? And I open it up and it's a check for every single one of those tags and i just sat there with a calculator i'm i'm tabulating it all up and the tears are like flowing down my face because i've never had an experience like that and i went oh okay i get it i see <laughs> what the potential is for that and that to date was one of the best jobs i had and when we were doing uh, pokemon Occasionally, we would do commercials, promos for the show on Kids WB, where it first aired. So, and they they would occasionally use me to come on to do a line. I was going to the session, and Veronica Taylor, who does the voice of Ash, was in just before me. And so she sees me and says, "Well, uh, this is going to be a good day for you." And because they had like all of these, all this copy for me to do, and many many sessions and each one was its own fee so that was a good day <laughs> but they, they didn't happen that frequently so when i had done some of these basic little things a friend of mine who was now an attorney but had been a, a younger actor he said you know a buddy of mine is looking for voices for this new anime project he's doing so i'll give him a call just tell him i recommended you i called and i said you know ross sent me and they scheduled an appointment so i went in I did about five different voices. One of them was this eccentric professor character. And then I went home and forgot about it. And then a couple weeks later, I get a call and they said, um, well, we, we want you to do this uh, Professor O character. And I said, great. So, uh, you know, so I'd go in and every time I went in for the first uh, couple of months, they would play my audition tape back so I could remember what it was I was doing. I didn't really remember. I said, okay, whatever. <laughs> I had no idea that the show was anything special. I mean, I just was, it was a job. So about a year goes by and I'm, I've been doing the show and I walk by a newsstand. This sounds, this is how old it is. Cause you know, <laughs> newsstands where they actually have physical newspapers and magazines and there's a Newsweek magazine and the cover of Newsweek magazine is Ash and Pikachu. And the headline is the Pokemon phenomenon. It stopped me dead in my tracks. And I went, I'm in a phenomenon, you know, yeah. because it didn't really dawn on me how big this thing was. The rest, of course, is history. And I wound up doing Professor Oak for close to a decade. So to say he's part of me is an understatement because, I mean, he really he really is. It's like after that first year, they didn't have to play back my audition tape. I, I knew I knew every nuance of him. <laughs> basically uh invented it for english-speaking audiences so right. we became very close <laughs> and phenomenon is an understatement i mean yeah the game uh the show had just came out then you had the games coming and then it was just 
after the races and it's, yeah, it's still I mean, going still non-stop yeah, there, there was a time when i was actually doing a broadway musical uh the wild party and i was rehearsing during the day i had a dinner break and then i'd come back and do a preview that night and in my dinner break i would run to a studio and do some of the pokemon game that oak voiced so that was that was what i was doing during my dinner break <laughs> so i guess it's always better to be too busy than not busy you know right. so so those were kind of that was kind of a golden time what was the typical re- recording session like for pokemon how many episodes are you knocking out are you there for an hour or so yeah, for for Oak, generally they book me. They, they always guaranteed an hour, and then occasionally it would go into two hours. I mean, he was always used sporadically throughout episodes, so it was rarely like an all day thing. It was the, the the video games were more intense because you're just laying down. I mean, I I remember they gave me the script, and it was just a, a sentence or three words, or you know, good for you, and then, you know that that's the way, <laughs> and. I would just stand there and just do line after line after line and a line and it, it was kind of insane but you get it done you know and the truth is it gets easier as you're more comfortable with the character so it's very easy to just sort of churn them out you know occasionally do a retake the sessions for the episodes were fun because occasionally the lip flaps had to match exactly and the english scripts were geared to try to match the lip flaps that we got from japan that's where a little little bit of ingenuity came out. And, and instead of just compressing it, we would try it. Or occasionally we'd say, let's just, and sometimes I'd say, well, what, what if I just made the line this? And it was great when it would work out, you know, because you'd become part of the process of making everything fit. That's what was fun and really creative. And we laughed a lot. I mean, it was really, the, the strange is that we never worked together, the, the other actors, we never worked at the same time. Wow. So I would go in and, and sometimes, Ash's lines would already be done, or one of the directors or something would put in a dummy track of it with their voice just so I could have something to respond to. Right. And then we'd lay down all of Oak's tracks. And then the next person would be in and they'd build, they'd build the episode that way. I, d- I did a guest spot on, on uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I was Dr. Dome, which was a couple of episodes. And that was the first time I was ever in the room with the other actors and we were all we were actually playing off each other so i think pokemon was more the norm because Mm -hmm. that way there's more quality control with one actor at a time they can do all the mixing they need to do and and then uh, put it all together but that's fun too because there's a lot of energy in the room that you're that you're sharing so even when you guys recorded for the movies it was never together it was still on a singular basis single right yeah and uh, yeah, I, lo- I love the one movie where at the end of the movie, maybe it's the third, mo- second or third movie. And I jump out of a, I think it's a Jeep. He reaches back in pain and the line was something, oh, my back. And I went, that's, you know, it's okay. But I said, what about if I did, ooh, my lumbago? <laughs> and they liked that. And that got in the movie. And I was so happy because I, because I, I, I wrote that line. <laughs> <laughs> little improv <laughs> yeah is it safe to say that your musical theater background helped you with the dubbing process because i know it's more of a timing thing it's kind of musical almost doing the version where your voice replacing challenging because you're watching the video you have a click track so you can you can and the numbers are going by to make it sound as if it's coming out naturally and you're not working to squeeze in things 
is is kind of an art in itself and i you know i i live for the day when like disney where you go in and they just record you and then they then they build the animation around you I, i'm ready for that <laughs> in case you're listening <laughs> so you were never given any direction for oak's voice you were just you just get nailed it and they said you use that for the rest of the go they like the quality this is a funny thing one of the first games i did had an executive from japan who spoke very little english so he's in the booth with the technicians and I'm doing, and this is early on. So I've only been doing the role for a few months. I don't know. So I'm doing a bunch of dialogue and all of a sudden the executive gets on the mic and he goes, no, 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 no. And he stops me. And I, and I like the, what? And he goes, more okay. is what, is what he said. Okay. And, and I had to think a second. I said, what is he talking about? Okay. And I went, Oh, he's talking about the kind of a crack in the voice that comes with that's the oaky oaky quality. So once once he said that, it actually it actually clicked everything for me because it defined it. What I was doing, I wasn't even thinking about it. He put a label on it, then I was good. So the oaky is the kind of a crack in the voice, you know. And I was doing it naturally because it sounded correct for him what I was seeing and doing. So and I, you know, I'm still I still do it. <laughs> I'm I'm a little. I'm a little more cracky in the voice myself. <laughs> so, out of all the voices that you've done, is there one that you look back on and maybe it's a little bit too harsh on the vocal cords? One that you never want to do again? There was one character, and it wasn't on. It wasn't part of the Pokemon series, and he was he was kind of a um, servant to a a pint-sized prince who looked kind of like a like a toddler, and I'd always be running after him, going. No, master, no. <laughs> you know? And that that gets a little tiresome after a while. <laughs> there was one also what was the character. He was kind of a Truman Capote voice, and I really, I was really fun to do. He was kind of pre, a, a pinch like that. He would do talk like that, and I, I, I had so much fun doing it. I guess, I guess the answer is no. I mean, it's not. You know, it's I've, I've done more stage work. I think mm. where 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 I've strained myself. And when you're doing a show like Little Shop eight times a week, by the end of the week, you, you really hear it in your voice. So, um, you know, that's what, that's why they give you days off. So you can, <laughs> so you can rest and rejuvenate. <laughs> so stage, uh, screen booth, you look back over the entirety of your career. What are, what's the role that kept you up the most at night and had you pulled most of your hair out? <laughs> oh, wow. That's a good question. The shows, I love a challenge. I never shy away from a challenge. Sometimes because it's a short rehearsal period, the trying to get all this finesse in time to be in front of an audience sometimes weighs on you. I've done I've done filler on the roof, and I did my I did my first Tevia up for a Syracuse stage, and that's a bear of a role. I mean, he's he's on almost the entire show, and it's emotionally strenuous, it's vocally strenuous, but I was so focused. On, uh, there was also, because it's done at a university, they would have some undergrads in some of the smaller roles. So I wanted to lead by example. So I wanted to be the first one off the script. And so I pushed myself faster than I pretty much ever uh, pushed myself. And it was really great because you get more comfortable and then you can start exploring and finding things. Likewise, I did a, a, a summer production of The Producers and played Max Bialystok. So these are these are Fiddler, Tevia and Max are, were both originated by Zero Mostel, which he's kind of one of my film comic heroes. And um, and doing that role was 
kind of a dream come true because when the movie came out originally, I identified with Leo Bloom, which was the Gene Wilder character. And by the time I got to do it, I was more physically right for Max. <laughs> and to suddenly see the show from that perspective was a real, uh, just real eye opener. And just as it was going from Muddle the Tailor, which is what I identified when I was younger to Tevia. Personally, these are real great growth moments for me. And and I'm doing it again, going from Seymour to Mr. Mushnick. So it's I'm really lucky to be able to go back and see shows from different perspectives, you know, and be right. part of them. The Seymour soul is still in me, but now he's a little he's a little weather beaten and uh, <laughs> and world world life weary, you know. So Stuart, if you could go back in time and have mm -hmm. a second crack or maybe just take a different approach at a role, what would that be? I would like to do Tevia again. I think that would be really fun to do uh, if I get if I get an opportunity. A lot of those parts I, I can't go back to because I'm too old. <laughs> I'm too old for them now. If I if I had a chance to be the oldest living Seymour, I would I would I would do that again because I just remember what a it was like. You don't have to go to the gym when you do a show like that. You're I, I remember getting to intermission and being my shirt was soaked, my t-shirt was soaked. I had to change everything because I was just saturated. You kind of you kind of give it all over there, and uh, you know. But you know what? I I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's it's a great great experience. And that said, I would love to uh, be doing Professor Oak again too. That would be a lovely thing too. So, but I'm really appreciative of the fans that have continued to love the show and be supportive of us and reach out to us. That means a lot. And it just means that we've touched a lot of lives. And um, that's one thing about being in the entertainment industry is these are gifts that come out of you and you give it to people and they and they carry it with them. It's very ethereal, but it's also very, very real and very concrete. And, you know, when fans come up and uh, frequently uh, someone when I was doing the personal appearances, which I hope we start doing again, the the mantra, the things I would hear the most are you were my whole childhood, you know, and then someone coming in, you sort of see them kind of trembling and they'll going, can I hug you? And it's and it's like it really touches me that it means that much and it's impacted on them so much. And that's that's a rare thing to be able to do in life. I feel very blessed about that. And as so, one of those fans, just let me say, I'm over 30 years old, and when you just pull out the Professor Oak voice out of nowhere, my hair on my arms standing up over here, it's a, I'm six years old again, you know, I was born in 1990, so I'm right there. It happens now if I'm if I'm in a show, and you know, I sort of put it, I, I add it in my program, and um, and a couple people actually read it, and they'll discover, they go, really, you were Professor Oak? And, uh, yeah, and, I, and I'll just come out with a line, and, um, and I just watch them turn into a 10-year-old, it's really... <laughs> It's just, it's kind of an amazing thing. It gives me a lot of joy because it actually gave them a lot of joy. So, you know, voice actors specifically have a superpower. You know, it's just, <laughs> I don't know, it's just tied to a specific moment in folks' lives. And it's all they got to do is hear the voice and boom, you're right there again. You know? I still got it. So, it's still here <laughs> lurking around. <laughs> so, Stuart, what's the best acting advice you've received throughout your career? I think people who gave me encouragement to not give up. Because, you know, when I when I meet young people and they say they're interested in theater and I say, well, I said it needs to be it needs to be an obsession. It needs to be a passion that you really can't fight. If there's any 
ambiguity there or any ambivalence, or if there's anything else that you could do, I would say do that. And it's constant rejection. You, you have to be these commercials. And now we're doing self tape auditions. And, and before that we were going into rehearsal studios and you're just laying your soul out there in front of these people and you get, thank you. You know, and it's like, and you have to gather yourself up and walk out and maintain your dignity and your self belief in yourself and, and go forward. And that takes a lot. So I have learned to allow myself to get angry when I'm not happy about the outcome. I stopped asking when you don't get the result you want and you, you say you're great, you know, find out, can you give me some feedback? Don't ask for feedback because you're never going to get the truth and you're never going to get, you know, they made the decision and who knows why. And it's better off not knowing because they're going to make up something and you're not going to be happy with the, with, with the answer. <laughs> and believe in yourself. You have to believe in yourself. You have to carry that around that, you know, maybe, you, you know, you write a friend, you write something on the wall that says um, you're great. You can do it. You're, you're a superhero, you know, whatever it is because the world is fill, filled with people who would like to do that, who who couldn't do that, who are jealous, who, you know, there's a million reasons. So you have to keep that strength in yourself and there's really no one else who could give that. It's wonderful if you have a support system, if your family is rooting for you, friends who believe in you, but you gotta be able to do it whether you have that or not. And that's, uh, that's kind of crucial. I've learned, I've learned to be my, you know, my, my biggest uh, supporter. When I opened in Little Shop of Horrors many years ago, I didn't have anybody in the audience. And I actually didn't want anybody in the audience. I said, I want to do this performance tonight for me to confirm that I can do this. And when I walked out of that theater, I was like floating on a cloud because I said, okay, you got this. You got it. It's under your belt. It's yours now. And Likewise, when I opened in uh, doing Mr. Mushnick just a little over a month ago, I did it for me because I wanted to. I wanted to first get through that first that first performance. I wanted to be okay. I've done it, and then I could relax. Uh, so now I'm having a great time. Well said, Stuart. I'm not going to keep you all afternoon here. Uh, just to wind down, I'll finish up with what's on the horizon for you. Anything in the pipeline you can tell us about? Well, Little Shop's going to go on for a while. It's open ended, so I'll be with the show at least into October. And if um, everything's going well, maybe they will ask me to stay longer than that. I'm auditioning for other projects, TVs, and occasionally a movie. You never know where I'm gonna turn up. <laughs> so, and and after I, we finish today, I'm gonna get ready to do a self-tape for a TV series. So um, keep, keep your fingers crossed. Crossed. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I'll be in touch. I'll send you a link to this when I get it edited and nice and pretty. Terrific. All right, you have okay. a good day. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? 
the sacred Night Demon Crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.